1: Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Zwellani Tulu, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the Africa-Continental Free Trade Area Agreement will be a game-changer for investment on the African continent. Human Rights Watch says thousands of people with mental health conditions across Nigeria are chained and locked up. And South Sudan President Salva Kiir has promised never to return his country to ethnic fighting. We'll also have some business news and sporting news a little bit later on in the hour. But right now it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Onelensenski with your, excuse me, here is Jwalani Toulorada with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African, From an
2: African
3: perspective.
4: perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. South Sudan's President Salva Kiir has promised never to return his country to ethnic fighting. The fighting has claimed the lives of more than 20,000 people. Over the past six years, Kiir was speaking to local journalists in South Sudan's capital, Juba.
5: I promise that I will never return South Sudan back to war forever. In that spirit, and not to give the SPLM AIO a reason to return to war, I, as your President, had to accept the 100 days extension to avoid the potential for the splm AIO to, to have a reason to return South Sudan to war again. Call on the Army and the other organized forces to maintain peace and accept my orders not to return South Sudan to war.
4: Gambia's President Edgar Lungu has pardoned three high-profile prisoners. A statement from the presidency confirmed the release of five prisoners from various correctional facilities. Amongst them are a former minister, a journalist a journalist rather, and an ex-air force commander. The statement also adds that the president's actions are in line with the constitution. The Gambia has filed a case at the United Nations top court against Myanmar, accusing it of committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslim minority. The International Court of Justice, ICJ, also known as the World, the World Court, is the UN's top legal institution that rules on disputes between states. Both the Gambia and Myanmar are signatories to the 1948 Genocide Convention, which not only prohibits states from committing genocide, but also compels all signatory states to prevent and punish the crime of genocide. The authorities in Zimbabwe say at least 200 elephants have died due to a lack of food and water. This, They say this is a result of severe drought in the country. Last month, the authorities said 55 elephants had died. Zimbabwe is thought to be a home uh, home to around 80,000 elephants, around a fifth of Africa's total. The BBC's Will Ross has the story.
1: In an effort to prevent more of the elephants dying, a spokesman for Zimbabwe's Parks and Wildlife Management Authority said there were plans to move 600 of the animals from Save Valley Conservancy in the southeast of the country to three other national parks. He said until the rains came, there'd be more deaths due to loss of habitat caused by the severe drought. Giraffe, lions, buffalo and antelope will also be moved in what the authorities describe as the biggest relocation in the country's history. Park officials say there are too many elephants in Zimbabwe. Animal welfare groups have criticised recent reports that dozens of young elephants have been flown from Zimbabwe to zoos in China.
4: And finally, Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam says the setting alight of a man during protests in in the territory is inhumane. The man is in a critical condition after being doused with a flammable, flammable liquid and set on fire during mayhem. In an earlier incident, the police shot a demonstrator who is also in a critical condition. Lam has been speaking following one of the most chaotic days in the five months of protests in Hong Kong.
0: If there is still any wishful thinking that by escalating violence The Hong Kong SEL government will yield to pressure to satisfy the so-called political demands. I'm making this statement clear and loud here. That will not happen. Violence is not going to give us any solution to the problems that Hong Kong is facing. Headlines at 5.30 for
4: Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo.
3: S.A.B.C. News, independent and impartial.
6: From From an African perspective.
1: South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa says the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement will be a game-changer for investment and business opportunities on the continent in the next 10 years. Speaking at the Second Africa Investment Forum in Santin, Johannesburg, the President says the agreement will, in the next 15 years, increase intra-Africa trade by more than 20% and has called on investors to invest in Africa. The trade agreement was signed by 44 African countries in Kigali, Rwanda last year. Amina Akram reports
0: representatives of African government sovereign wealth funds, businesses, financial intermediaries and investors all gathered at the Santon Convention Center to find ways to unlock the continent's untapped economic potential. Speaking at the second Africa Investment Conference, President Cyril Ramaphosa hailed the potential of the free trade area agreement. He outlined how the agreement will benefit the continent.
3: Consumers will benefit from the removal of trade barriers and business costs will be reduced, but by far the most and significant potential of the AFCTA will be increasing the value of intra-Africa trade, which by some estimates is likely to rise by 15 to 25 percent by the year 2040. In doing so, the free trade area will encourage
0: greater self-reliance Ramaphosa also noted increased confidence on the continent as a result of political stability. He applauded African countries which have run successful democratic elections. He says the African Union vision of peace for the continent is being realized. He says the post-colonial view that Africa is a risky place to do business because of wars is starting to lose credibility and investors are flocking in.
3: This has been a good year for the consolidation of democracy across our continent. National, presidential and parliamentary elections have been held in a number of countries, notably global investor surveys consistently highlight political stability and security as important considerations for committing capital. Every election that passes peacefully And that reflects the will of the people is another major step towards the attainment of the African Union's vision of an Africa that is at peace with itself.
0: Meanwhile, Gauteng Premier David Makura used the opening ceremony of the forum to showcase the economic opportunities that Gauteng has to offer. He urged investors to continue investing on the continent, particularly in SMEs and in young people in businesses. He says they are working hard to fight xenophobia in the province.
3: As Gauteng province, it is an honor and privilege to be the, the host of this premier investment platform on behalf of South Africa and indeed on behalf of Africa. The Houghton City region is the 26th largest urban area in the globe with 15.2 million residents. We are South Africa's economic hub. We are a prime destination for foreign direct investment. That the Africa Investment Forum is making a direct contribution to South Africa's efforts and drive on investment, particularly relating to infrastructure investment.
0: This year, the forum will include in its program analytics, updates and open boardroom sessions for deal signings, more than 2,000 delegates have registered for this year's forum from 109 countries, 48 of them from Africa. The forum will also have a special focus on investing in African women. Dr. Akinumi Adesina is president of the African Development Bank.
3: You will soon here, Your Excellencies, the Seabee ladies and gentlemen, from three project sponsors who were here last year and how they progress on their investments. I am pleased that this forum, we focus on changing the investment narrative for Africa. Africa has rebranded itself, not as perceived by others, but, but for itself. Africa has repositioned itself. And Africa is harnessing investors' interests and investments.
0: Last year, the forum closed 45 bankable deals on the continent worth $32 billion a total of 6.8 of the $32 billion went towards South African projects, mostly in energy and transport. South Africa also signed a $3.6 billion transaction with Ghana for the development of the Accra Skytrain. In 2018, the forum managed to attract 6 billion rand worth of investments into South Africa. I am Amina Akram in Johannesburg.
1: The three-day investment forum, which is expected to give African countries the opportunity to promote their projects in various sectors to investors, has started. Last year, thirty-eight billion U.S. dollars worth of investment pledges were signed. Let's pick up on what Ghana's President Nana Akufo-Addo uh, and what he said as he talks about partnership between his country and Côte d'Ivoire relating to cacao industry.
7: I think that the question goes is a sort of a microcosm of the. of the the challenge that we're facing on the continent and um, why do I say so? Between Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, we're responsible for 65% of the world's output of cocoa. The cocoa industry, chocolate and all the related parts, is a hundred billion plus United States dollar industry, world, the global industry, a value chain that produces some $100 billion plus. Out of that, the founders, whose hard work and toil is responsible for the cocoa, the 65%, get $6 billion plus maximum for their effort. You look at those facts and you know that there's something seriously wrong with that arithmetic. So uh, when I came into office, I I began to speak about it. Very fortunately for me uh, and for our two countries, the Ivorian leader, Lhasa Wattara, had the same point of view as myself. We found that we had a joint uh, mutual assessment of what was the reality and the need for us to do something about the reality. I see that is the most important aspect of political office, the, the, the opportunity it gives to you to address fundamental issues of confronting your people. So as a result of talks in Abidjan and in Accra, we came to a mutual understanding of what we needed to do, which was to fuse the marketing, the production, and marketing policies of our two countries. Uh, the Cocoa Marketing, Bo- uh, Cocoa Board is the main instrument, state instrument, for the development of the Cocoa, and they have a Conseil de Cacao Cafe in Côte d'Ivoire, which is plays an equivalent role there. So it is a question of bringing the two groups together to forge a common policy, and they have done so, insisting that In future, we would enter the market uh, at a certain basic floor price and hold hold that price, and then out of it find the opportunity to increase the earnings of our farmers. So that floor price has been stated. We've gone into the market on that basis. We now have the opportunity to pay our farmers a $400, if you like bonus which we call the living income differential per ton and enhancing the 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 incomes of our cocoa farmers so that they get more out of this value this 100 billion dollar industry than they would be given before and we also found tremendous support from the african development bank which is is indicated and as it's part of the agreements that we're going to sign here that they are prepared to support us enhancing our infrastructure in the cocoa industry being able to have a greater capacity for warehousing being able to do more processing in our country of the of the raw material and therefore being able to participate at the higher and higher level of the value chain in the cocoa industry and the end result of all of this is going to be a considerable enhancement. Of the incomes of our cocoa farmers. Unfortunately, I think that um, the more progressive elements of the world industry have seen the value of the policy. Mars, the United States company, which is one of the biggest players in the industry, has come out openly to support the policy that uh, the Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire have evolved together, to saying that it is the way to ensure a sustainable industry. So um, Like everything in history, I mean, there's a combination of of luck, uh, the the time was ripe, uh, the circumstances were there, and I found um, uh, an interlocutor who shared the same vision as myself. So it was easy for us to work together towards this common goal. He's, in fact, the bigger producer, he's the number one producer. Cote d'Ivoire is the number one producer, we are the second. But between us, we come to this figure of
8: 65%. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment.
1: Human Rights Watch says thousands of people with mental health conditions across Nigeria are chained and locked up in various facilities where they face terrible abuse. The organization says detention, chaining and violent treatment are pervasive uh, in many settings, including state hospitals, rehabilitation centers, traditional healing centers and both Christian and Islamic faith based facilities. More from Aniti Awang, researcher at Human Rights Watch.
10: Yes, I agree. It's completely worrisome, um, but I think it underscores two main things. The first of which is the deep-rooted problems in Nigeria's healthcare and welfare system that leave most Nigerians unable to get adequate mental health care support in their communities. And it also shows, um, you know, that there's still a lot of stigma and misunderstanding about mental health conditions, including, um, you know, perceptions that they are caused by evil spirits or supernatural forces. And this often prompts relatives to take their loved ones to places where uh, the care is questionable.
6: And uh, can you describe to us, Aneti, I mean, the conditions that uh, the victims have been found in?
10: Um, We visited at least 28 places. And in 27 of the 28 places, we found um, that people were uh, shackled in the facilities where they were in. These facilities included psychiatric hospitals, state-run rehabilitation centers, as well as traditional and religious uh, settings where, um, that offered uh, mental health care to people. There's one particular place that is further etched in my memory. It was a, a state-run rehabilitation center in Anambra State. Now, Anambra State is, uh, is a state in the southeastern part of the country. And we found most of the residents there chained to their beds unable to move far um and they had to defecate they had to urinate and mm-hmm. they had to eat you know on on their beds where they were chained um the the people who ran the center spoke of you know lack of adequate funding to be able to manage the place better and and from everything that we saw we could conclude that there was a huge need mm-hmm. for many of the people there to to receive immediate mental mental care um and 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 medical care as well Um, They they didn't even have power to ensure that, uh, you know, the place was adequately lit and many of the residents were given touchlights with which they could navigate their way around. I mean, it just shows the abysmal state in which Mm. mental health care facilities are in across the country. Mm. And, I mean, this is something that we're bringing to the attention of the authorities to say that it is one thing to focus on, you know, religious settings as they have in the past. There's been a crackdown on many Islamic rehabilitation centers in the last couple of weeks. But we must also focus our attention on state institutions uh, that where we also have chaining. We've also seen that chaining is right.
6: Now, I mean, you've highlighted the issue of, of funding as, as one of the major causes for this. But um, could we also attribute, you know, um, a stigma and lack of education around mental illness? Because across the continent, we've seen uh, people who um, are suffering with this sort of getting substandard treatment. You know, um, let's just delve into some of the contributing factors here, Aniti.
10: Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I mentioned earlier on, it's uh, definitely one of the core factors is stigma and misunderstanding about mental health care. And as a result of this, many people who may have alternatives do not, you know, um, assess those alternatives. But then I think it's also really important to underscore that for many people, they don't see that they have alternatives. Essentially, because what well, we have less than three hundred psychiatrists for a population of one hundred and eighty million people. Um, you know, mental health care services are very far and in between for many people. Not to talk about the prohibitive cost. So even where people see that a psychiatric hospital, for example, is is an alternative, many people don't have the resources, and so they go to these alternative centres. And but that is also not to you know um, take away from the fact that this. The alternative places of care are first, are places of first call to many other people because of the strong belief that mental health care is um, caused by some evil spirit or some, um, (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, I mean,
10: we're, we're really calling on the authorities not only to invest in our uh, mental health care system, but also to ensure that they take on a huge campaign mm. to, to uh, change this perception, especially amongst our local communities as well as those who provide, you know, uh, alternative healthcare services and really drumming the fact that um, chaining and the deployable conditions in which some of mm. these people are kept are, are human rights and uh, just to
6: finally, has there been any reaction um, as yet to, to these recommendations and, and, and the appeal um, to authorities?
10: There's been none as yet, but we're really hoping that um, with the, the political will that the authorities have shown in the last couple of weeks to really um, end uh, human rights abuses in um, many of these uh, religious and um, uh, you know, religious and traditional settings that you know they they follow in that in that zeal to also investigate state-run centers as well as um, you know psychiatric hospitals and ensure that the chaining and other uh, human rights abuses that we've documented are, are put to an end.
1: And that was Aniti Ewang, researcher at Human Rights Watch, and she was on the line to economy. So the time is now 1723 Central African time. This is still Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangasi.
4: When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile
1: Hello Africa This is 1000 African Voices and I'm your host Abu Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10 Rise
8: Africa Rise
5: Channel Africa The
11: Voice of the African Renaissance
2: When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time
4: where I was black and only black, and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger, in a South Africa that was hostile.
5: Hello, Africa. This is
1: 1000 African Voices and I'm your host, Aburrengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa. Rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's Minister of Home Affairs, Dr. Aaron M- uh, Mutaledi, has signed a waiver which allows foreign children to enter the country without carrying additional supporting documents as birth certificates and consent letters. The waiver has been applicable since Friday after the Minister's signature. Mutualedi says this improvement in South Africa's adminis- admissions policy builds on the work the department has been doing to contribute to economic growth and investment. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Dr. Aaron Mutualedi himself, South Africa's Home Affairs Minister. Uh, Minister, thank you very much for joining us.
11: Thank you very much, uh, Samora, and thank you very much for the us, and thank you for having me.
1: Uh, now, Minister, talk to us about this policy change and the significance. Uh, what, 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 what can we expect?
11: Yes, uh, remember that five years ago, this requirement was introduced. That when tourists come to South Africa, they are traveling with a minor child, they must carry an unabridged uh, certificate on their person, uh, uh, so that they can produce it if asked. That is the law that we have abolished because ever since it was introduced five years ago, the Minister of Tourism in South Africa, the Tourism Council in South Africa, the tourism industry were up in arms that uh, this is discouraging tourists uh, from visiting South Africa. And that's why it was reviewed and set aside.
1: Now, the issue has been a concern in the tourism industry for years, and tourism operators into uh, South Africa have said that they've been losing as much as 30% in business uh, due to unabridged birth certificate requirements. Do you think South Africa will regain its share of the market with this policy change?
11: Well, it is being hoped if really uh, we lost that share of the market because of the introduction of the policy. And it's logical that when you abolish the policy, it ought to pick up and then we regain that market that has been lost.
1: Mm. Now, the argument from Home Affairs was that uh, the policy was to stop child, traffic, which, uh, to stop tra- child trafficking. Uh, which other method will be used as a way to curb human trafficking?
11: Yes, indeed you are right, because the issue of unabridged certificate was not the only method used to fight child trafficking, nor was it the panacea for child trafficking. There are many other methods like uh, 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 integrating, I mean talking to Interpol, uh, using United Nations agencies and other NGOs and human rights groups that are fighting child trafficking. We will go on utilizing those only that we we are leaving this one out, which was just one of the tools in the arsenal, but not really the main tool.
1: All right, Minister, thank you very much for joining us. But before I let you go, I just want to let you know that uh, you guys are doing a good job there at Home Affairs. I was there today and I was in and out within 30 minutes.
11: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to hear that.
1: Thank you very much yet again. That's Dr. Aaron Mutsualeri, South Africa's uh, Home Affairs Minister. A very big thank you to him for joining us. Looking forward to seeing how this new policy is going to change uh, how things work especially when it comes to uh, you know an abridged birth certificate requirements and also hopefully raising the uh, business that is going to be coming in uh, through tourism in south africa but right now it's a seventeen twenty eight central african time let's uh cross on over to joelani Tulo for your latest news headlines right after this mm-hmm.
12: Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so
3: much. Um, it's an honor to be here.
12: Palesa Mukubung, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event. I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do
11: it really, really well. Yeah.
1: Right now, it's time for your latest news headlines.
3: SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
6: perspective.
4: Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, Gambia's President Edgar Lungu has pardoned three high-profile prisoners. The authorities in Zimbabwe say at least 200 elephants have died due to lack of food and water. And finally, Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam says the setting alight of a man during protests in the territory is inhumane. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
3: SABC News. Independent. And impartial from an
4: African
6: perspective,
1: South Sudan President Salva Kiir has promised never to return his country to ethnic fighting. As James Shimanyula reports, the fighting has claimed the lives of more than 20,000 people over the past six years.
8: Speaking to local journalists in South Sudan's capital, Yuba, President Salva Kiir made the following rare promise
5: I promise that. I will never return South Sudan back to war forever. In that spirit, and not to give the SPLM-AIO a reason to return to war, I, as your president, had to accept the 100 days extension to avoid the potential for the SPLM-AIO to to have a reason to return South
8: Sudan to war again. The war that President Salva Kiir is speaking about has caused the death of more than 20,000 people since 2013 and forced over 2 million others to flee the country to seek refuge in neighboring countries. As Kir's promise not to return the people of his country to war sunk into the minds of citizens of South Sudan, he had this urgent message to South Sudan's National Army.
5: I call on the army and the other organized forces to maintain peace, And accept my orders not to return South Sudan to war. Finally, I call upon the parties to to the agreement to be patient and accept the decision of the
8: grantors. The guarantors that Kir has referred to are leaders of Uganda and Sudan who endorsed an agreement signed in the Ugandan capital, Kampala, by Kir and Machar that. The promises they made of forming a new government in February next year will be fulfilled. President Kera also promised to ensure that $100 million required as part of funds to implement the peace agreement are available.
5: I want to assure you that we will raise the remaining part of the $100 million the government has pledged, because that is what the... The SPLM AIO used to to accuse the government of having no commitment and having no political will to implement the agreement.
8: That was South Sudan President Salva Kiir. His promise of not taking the people of his country to war again has prompted ordinary citizens to make the following remarks. We
11: understand parties. Up to now, they could not be able to agree on some issues that they have signed. We have this experience that if they fail to agree on something then the only solution that uh, they have is to fight.
4: Anything that will bring for us peace is what we will go for. But if you see that the formation of this government is being contested by the other party we think that that might exacerbate more suffering to the people and will make people more worried as i speak to you there are people who are thinking of plan b what to do if the government is formed and the other side that is, say dr ryak Machar is not part of the government
8: voices of ordinary south sudan citizens meanwhile the east african regional trade bloc intergovernmental authority on development in short IGAD, has appealed to president Salva salvakel Rebel leader Riek Machar and other signatories to the peace agreement to resolve all issues that remain unresolved as quickly as possible. The appeal was made in a statement issued in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa, where leaders of member states attended an extraordinary meeting on South Sudan. egan's appeal comes shortly after President Kiran Riek Machar agreed to postpone the formation of an inclusive government of national unity to the first week of february next year that very government was to be formed tomorrow tuesday the 12th of this month in another development eager the council of ministers has asked president salvakel to disburs the balance of the plagued $100 million that are needed to complete the implementation of the peace agreement. South Sudan was engulfed by ethnic fighting in December 2013, after President Salva Kiir accused his main political and military rival, Riek Machar, of plotting to bring down the Juba administration. But Machar vehemently denied the accusation. It may be recalled that in September last year, Kir, Machar and other signatories signed a peace agreement. The agreement set the pace for the formation of a new government in May this year. However, due to unresolved issues, the formation of the government was pushed to the 12th of November, which is tomorrow, Tuesday. As time ticks away to Tuesday, and that very Tuesday passes, more than 14 million citizens of South Sudan will wait until the first week of February next year, when hopefully they will witness the establishment of an inclusive government of national unity. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanula.
1: The Khoi and San people have become the first indigenous people in the world to have their traditional knowledge recognized by an industry. A historic benefit sharing agreement were, has been reached between these groupings and the Roibos industry in South Africa. It resulted in a percentage of all commercial sales at farm gates uh, uh, of around 800,000 US dollars per year to be put into trusts. Now with their centuries old knowledge of the plant officially acknowledged, there is hope that will translate to there's hope that it will translate to tangible change for this long marginalized people, but also great development for small scale robust farmers in South Africa. Carmel uh, Lochenberg Roberts reports.
12: In the Moravian mission station of Vipartal in the Cedarburg region, life is very slow. It could be the endless expanse of clear blue sky, the way of life, or possibly that everyone there has rooibos infused within their DNA. The CEO of the Vipartal Original Rooibos Co-op, Baron Sulemoor, says this type of tea is a huge part of their culture. It runs in our veins. It's part of our culture. You can't talk about rooibos without Vipartal people, and you can't talk about Vipirtal people without rooibos, we are linked. You don't know rooibos until you taste Vipital rooibos. The pensioner is one of 63 organic certified rooibos farmers in the area. Rooibos is an indigenous plant that flourishes only in the Cedarburg region of the Western Cape. The Vipirtal production area falls on the eastern slope of the Cedarburg Mountains, which gets very little rain. Salamua says this results in a tea that is more sweet and tasty and of exceptional quality. He says the knowledge of rooibos tea and its benefits have been passed down for centuries. You know, when the first missionaries came here in the early 1800s, there were seven koi families in this village. So we were here before the missionaries came. Nine years ago, the Koya and San people approached the rooibos industry in search of recognition for the ancient knowledge and use of the plant. It was a slow and arduous process. At the heart of the matter was the claim by koi and sand communities that they are the traditional knowledge holders of rooibos. Finally in 2016 there was a breakthrough, as explained by the chairperson of the National Koi and Sand Council, Cecil Le Fleur.
0: The council people, the people from the department, the people from Natural Justice and the rooibos representatives, they they all cried at that moment. because. We crossed the Rubicon uh, that was never expected to be crossed. And uh, that laid the foundation for, for a much better relationship ever since 2016. We then uh, decided that we will negotiate going further in good faith with each other.
12: Now an agreement is in place that translates to 1.5% of all sales at farm gates to be put into trusts, which amounts to around 12 million rand per year. Martin Berg from the South African Roybos Council says it's a milestone, not just for the industry, but in the world.
9: We had indigenous people who felt that their knowledge was being used and they were unhappy about that and they are supported by international accords. Uh, and the South African rooibos industry, which uh, recognizes the injustice of the past. And uh, as such, it took a long time, because it's groundbreaking work, it's first in the world work, to really work this out into a cord that was workable.
12: Government has committed to continue working with around 160 small-scale rooibos farmers. I am Carmel Lohmerg-Roberts in Cape Town.
1: A non-profit organization, Men Abuse, Men For Real, says against Men Abuse, Men For Real, says South Africa is not doing enough to protect men who are victims of domestic abuse and gender-based violence. The organization says a high number of men who are being uh, abused commit suicide or end up developing anger that leads them to commit so- uh, violent crimes, including murder. South Africa is counted among the worst countries in the world when it comes to domestic violence and gender-based violence. Selwa kakao reports
6: in recent years south africa has been engulfed by the scourge of gender-based violence and some men say initiatives to combat gender-based violence only focus on protecting women this they say leaves male victims helpless secretary of men for real Mumpuluki tsiye elaborates most men are being abused even verbally most men have been beaten up in the houses but they're closing up they don't speak out do not
3: allow yourself to bottle in and you end up committing suicide you end up killing people that you're not supposed to kill most men right now they are closed in jail
6: and they're not supposed to be there but they became perpetrators before they they were were perpetrators they were victims themselves Male victims of domestic violence say they are often not taken seriously at police stations when they report the abuse. One of them is 56-year-old father of four, Jan Ngozi. Ngozi says he was allegedly a victim of domestic abuse in his marriage for seven years. He says on numerous occasions he tried to report cases without success. His abuser then allegedly reported a case of abuse, and he was arrested because of the false accusations against him. He adds that while in the holding cells, he learned that men abuse is actually widespread. Nkosi
7: explains. I was locked up at Mabatu Police Station for three weeks. In that cell, there were other men with the same similar problem that I have. All of us were talking of our children and our women that are, are abusing us in our houses. And, but we, when we go there, we are not taken serious because at some point when I, when I, when my case was discharged, I went there, it was not taken seriously. The only time that was, they took me serious is when I talked to the superintendent to tell him that, look, I've got rights also. I can make a statement. I can open a case. That is when now I got a protection order against you.
6: Another victim is 49 year old, father of three Kwasmarewa. Maregwa says he too was allegedly, emotionally, and verbally abused by his ex-wife. Maregwa tells his story.
7: My F-
12: ex-wife then started uh, falsely accusing me of raping and physically assaulting her, yet I had never laid a hand on her. That's when I realized that my life was at risk because I ended up in jail for things I never did I now have a protection order against her because I realized that my life
1: is
11: at risk.
6: The Correctional Services Department says they have programs that help inmates to open up and get help. Employee Assistant Practitioner at Ruechront Correctional Service Center, Refilwe Muhulazi, elaborates. We do have programs designed at certain uh, uh, individual crimes
4: for sexual offense, for uh, murder. We do have anger management. And we also have, uh, these programs are categorized by therapeutic and non-therapeutic. Therapeutic Therapeutic programs are those offered by social workers and psychologists, and
6: non-therapeutic ones are offered by correctional officials. The men plead with government to create platforms for male victims of abuse. They insist that police must thoroughly investigate allegations of abuse before making arrests. Now it's
1: time for us to cross on over to Tracy Boomgard for your latest economics news.
2: Thank you, Samora. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says it's time for Africa to benefit from its mineral wealth and be a producer of value-added goods. He made the remarks at the opening of the second Africa Investment Forum in Johannesburg. He says the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement will be a game-changer for investment and business opportunities in the next 10 years for Africa. Ramaphosa says when fully running the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement will create a tariff-free continent and help in job creation. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has given five oil companies involved in the development of oil fields in the country's Albertine Graben one month to decide on several government proposals. Total E&P, China National Offshore Oil Company, and TOLO met with Museveni at the end of October to discuss key issues still hindering a final investment decision. The government expects the oil firms to issue statements on their readiness to progress to the next phase soon if they agree to the stipulations. Rwanda's Bank of Kigali has been listed among Africa's top 100 banks in the latest African business magazine ranking. It's the bank's first feature on the ranking as 100th position, as well as the first local bank to feature. The Bank of Kigali is a subsidiary of BK Group, which has three other subsidiaries, BK Insurance, BK Tech House and BK Capital. The situation remains dire in drought-stricken parts of South Africa, as farmers battle to keep their livestock alive the Eastern Cape Province has been declared a drought disaster area and the Agriculture Department is seeking over forty million dollars to mitigate the situation. MEC Nomakosazana Met says they are doing their best to assist the farmers.
12: As a provincial department, we are doing something. Hence, I'm um, saying the uh, 74 million, we are starting from today to source in uh, service providers to, pro- uh, to provide us with the feed. And we are putting a target for ourselves on the 18th of November that at least we
4: should have been able to deliver a feed to these uh, needy farmers of ours. But we are calling upon the farmers themselves to just uh, fill the forms for application that are available on the website.
2: Transnet, South African rail port and pipeline company, has reported a 2.9% growth in revenue in its half-year financial results, ended September 2019. Acting Transnet CEO Mohammedi says while it may have been a tough trading year, the company has managed to generate more than $1.5 billion from its operations. He says this means that Transnet does not have to borrow cash from the external markets, or go knocking at the doors of National Treasury for a bailout.
5: We as Transnet are pleased to announce that we have top-line marginal growth of approximately 2.9%. That's driven largely by a slightly better than expected performance on iron ore, on the export corridor, as well as on the petroleum line. And we have had uh, some good news in terms of our automotive sector. The automotive sector, together with Transnet, we've moved... A higher number of uh, units.
2: The US dollars trading at 360.70 Nigerian Naira, 10.75 Botswana Pula, at 101.15 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.60 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.16 Brazilian hail, 63.74 in Russian ruble, 71.02 Indian rupee, 6.99 Chinese yuan, and 14.83 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,461 and platinum at $885 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $61.98 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
1: And now it's time for your latest sport. Here is Neto Chmani.
9: Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with football news... South African national football team Bafana Bafana are departing for Ghana this evening, ahead of their much-anticipated Afghan 2021 qualifier against the Black Stars of Ghana on Thursday. Bafana Bafana will then host Sudan three days later on Sunday, the 17th of November, at the Orlando Stadium, Soweto. The other country in Group C is Sao Dome e Principe, which South Africa will only play next year. Bafana head coach Imoli Finzeki addressed the media this morning in Rosebank Johannesburg, prior to the team's final practice session on home soil.
7: The,
11: the, the program, uh, which appears to be uh, very much challenging, but this is a national team, there's nothing we can do about it um, except for us to be mentally ready to go to, to Ghana, uh, do our best and have to come back and play Sudan. As for the players, um, we have brought in Lebuma Nyama, whom we have been profiling over a period of time, um, to replace Temba Zwani. We got a medical report from Sundowns on Saturday to say uh, they thought Temba would be ready for Arrows game, and uh, now that uh, he's not ready, they, they thought it would be important for them to inform us of his uh, uh, medical conditions. Sebastian Mine,
9: former head coach of Kenya's Manson national football team, has been announced the new Equatorial Guinea head coach. The 46-year-old Frenchman guided Kenya to the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations in Egypt after a 15-year absence, but was sacked after with his assistant, Francis Kimanzi, taking his place. He replaces Angel Lopez, who resigned in September. Mine has been living in Kenya with his family since his sacking, but travelled to Equatorial recently and was unveiled as a new coach earlier last Thursday. In rugby news, the 2019 Rugby Africa men's servants came to an end on Saturday and so did the tournament that was hosted by the South African Rugby Union and organised by Rugby Africa to pick up the second Olympic 2020 team for the continent.
1: Kenya were crowned champions after securing a 9-0 victory over their neighbors Uganda in an entertaining final while Zimbabwe finished third in the tournament.
7: It's just an achievement that everybody everybody wanted to achieve and the effort that we put in from the boys, from the directors and to our, from our sponsors, it's something that has really motivated us and to got us to where we are. It was not a sure bet for us but we kept on working very hard and we were able to get
11: the trophy.
9: In athletics news, the recent decision by the IAAF to exclude 3,000 meters steeplechase from the Diamond League meetings and 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters before that is no reason for Kenyan, Ugandan, Ethiopian, or even Moroccan athletes not to participate in the lucrative league. According to former three time world 3,000 meters steeplechase champion Moses Kipdanoui of Kenya, the changes still leave some other options like. 3,000-meter flat for these middle-distance racers.
7: Uh, it doesn't make sense only one athlete depend on steeplechase around. We have some other races like 1500 which can still go very well with 3000 steeplechase, 5000 it can still do very well 3000 meter flat it can still do well uh, steeplechase runners can still do very well so we don't need again a athletes to depend on one race. If you go back to my time I used to run from 1500 to 5000 anything that comes I was ready for it. So athletes should really focus their mind That they need to be fit all time with all the races.
9: And finally, in tennis news. South African Raven Tlausen says playing the opening match at the NATO ATP finals wasn't easy, but he and his partner Michael Venus were happy to make a perfect start to their campaign. Tlausen and Venus claimed a break in each set and saved all four break points. They faced Andrew to handling a 6 3 6 4 defeat to American Rajiv Ram and home favorite Joe Salisbury at the 0 2 Arena.
0: No, we'll take that every day of the week. You know, uh, to be the first match of the of the finals is uh, a little nerve-wracking, and uh, to get off to a good start certainly puts our minds at ease for the for the rest of this tournament. It's tricky, you know, because you, you you're trying to come up with a game plan when a guy knows you pretty well and and you know him pretty well. So uh, you you're trying to hide your stuff as, as best as you can. But um, look, it's it's going to be tricky whenever you play against guys that have have done well to get to this stage of the year. And uh, I try to put that sort of behind and 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 concentrate on what me and Mike were doing. But
9: Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Eto Chemani.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: And uh, that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective.